The stages of rehabilitation can be used to inform survivors, family, friends, and communities after challenging events. The focus and language is different depending upon each group, but the pathway is the same. I want to identify and provide a brief description of the stages, not as a means of advice, but to provide insights and ideas gained by stories of individuals who experience tough and challenging events. Each guest is in a specific stage, so listen, see if you can identify what they did and are doing to move forward in their healing and recovery process. Stage six, metahabilitation. Look at what you created, the life you formed. It makes sense. Most of the time you don't choose the crisis, but now you see it for what it was and is, a way to be better in the world. It changed your strength in relationships, provided opportunities, insights, and behaviors once overlooked. You've been tested. You struggled, but your ultimate response has been strong and powerful. You grew, not in spite of the trauma, but as a direct result of it. You recognized a sliver of hope and went with it. You can find joy and purpose as you keep looking toward your future. Fox 4 News was the only crew there when Fort Worth police arrested a serial robbery suspect. Fox 4 with the exclusive video of today's arrest. Members of the fugitive squad went in and got it. Damon West was arrested after a five-year upscale burglary spree in the Dallas area. Today on Sliver of Hope, the podcast series on post-traumatic growth, Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn talks with Damon about stage six, taking on the future. In our series focusing on guiding survivors towards growth after trauma through Metahab. Find out more at metahab.com. Hi, this is Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn, and today I get to visit with Damon West. And Damon West has a very compelling and interesting story and will give us some really wonderful ideas about how do you take tragedy in triumph over that. So, Damon, I'm going to let you talk about your story and give a little bit of your background, and then we'll get into chatting about this more. Okay. Well, uh, Doctor, what we were talking about a while ago, how the network of people in recovery led us to each other. You just have to think this is what the universe wanted at this point. So right. I'm excited to be here. Well said. So, well said. Thank you. I will I will get to the, cut to the chase, as they say down here in the South. So I'm from Texas. <laughs> I'm from a town called Port Arthur, Texas, right there where Louisiana and Texas meet on the Gulf Coast is where I was born and raised and uh, came from a great home. I'm not one of those people that can come back and tell you that I had a, uh, you know, broke, came from a broken home, had a rough childhood and all that. Man, I had every, every advantage in life. I had every advantage in life. And later on, when I went to prison, I would tell these guys in prison, if you had the opportunities I had in life, you probably wouldn't be here right now. So for me to get from where I came from to live in life with a life sentence in a maximum security prison, I had to burn a lot of bridges and a lot of opportunities to get there. But I'll tell you how I did it, and then I'll tell you how I got out of it. So, Perfect. Um, I grew up in Port Arthur, uh, nice, neat little Catholic home. Uh, my father was a sports writer. My mother's a nurse. My father was actually the first sports writer in this part of the South to put a black athlete on the front page of a sports page. That was 1971. And we've got a box of hate mail at their house right now to show what that decision was like. I and mean, he got letters from the Klan, from everybody. And so my parents got thrusted into civil rights. And so I was raised by two wonderful parents that, that gave me a great moral compass and, and taught me that, you know, anytime you view something through the lens of race, you're gonna get a distorted picture. And so that is an important seed that I need to plant right now in this story because it's gonna save my life later on my story. And um, 
So I grew up in a town called Port Arthur. Port Arthur is a predominantly African-American town, refinery town, blue collar town. And um, when a lot of the white families were moving out of Port Arthur in the 70s and 80s, my parents dug their heels in and stayed. They resisted the white flight because they wanted their kids to go to integrated schools. And we did. Right. And my brothers and I, we grew up, uh, you know, I grew up being one of the only kids at birthday parties, one of the only white kids at birthday parties, slumber parties. Was our family family life perfect? No. I mean, it's 1985. I'll give an example. I was nine years old. My came out and told my parents my babysitter had been molesting me. And this is childhood sexual abuse in the 80s, Dr. Flynn. They didn't know mm-hmm. as much about it back then as they know now. So um, I went to counseling, went and talked to a family priest and all that. But that is the point in my life where I first get into substance abuse. And that's it. now I wanted to lead up to that because that's an important part. And being in recovery now, I know that this is what's called an activating event. Because by the time I'm 10, I'm drinking beer. I'm getting my dad's beer. I'm going to friends' house and have liquor cabinets. I'm, I'm smoking cigarettes. I'm putting in chemicals to change the way I feel. And it's the first time I'm really encountering uh, substance abuse. By the time I'm 12, I'm smoking pot. So I'm full-blown into drugs at the age of 12. Wow. So this all's happened. See, and, you know, this goes back to, not that this is a, a big discussion about addiction dependency, but you do see these roots start very early on in life and usually from some sort of childhood trauma or whatever that gets it going. So, yeah. Absolutely. And so, but more importantly, and I tell people this all the time when I go speaking, more importantly than that, I've got a bad belief system developing. And and I learned a lot about belief systems over the years. And a bad belief system usually wins out the end. They're very hard to change. And the longer we have a bad belief system, the harder it is to get rid of. And my bad belief system back then, Dr. Flynn, was, hey, all I'm doing is drinking a little beer, smoking a little pot. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not even hurting myself. And so I carry this belief system, and it leads to other belief systems that I can do whatever I want to do. And, and so I had a lot of character issues, and, and they were never really addressed. And I go on to college, and I'm a, I'm a very good athlete. I'm a three-year starting quarterback in high school in Texas, which is a big deal. Play college football right. for the University of North Texas. And eventually I get hurt uh, when I'm 20 years old, uh, the starting quarterback for my college football team got hurt and and I started making all the wrong choices at that point when football was taken away from me and you know I started putting in the hardcore drugs then because I didn't have a belief system that told me anything otherwise and right uh, Right. cocaine ecstasy pills all that kind of stuff I graduate college in 99 I go off to work in Washington I work for a guy I work for a guy in a U.S. congressman named Gene Green in the United States Congress and after that I work for a guy running for president of the United States, a guy named Dick Gephardt. You'll notice they're all Democrats here in this. this right, right, not, right. not that I, I want to get into a whole political discussion, but that's where, I mean, I have a lot of Democratic roots in my family. Not that that changes anything, what we're talking about. But uh, after Dick dropped out of the race in 04, I went to work for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, to train to be a stockbroker okay. in the Dallas branch. And it was at that job that I was introduced to meth for the first time. Now, remember, I've carried with me this bad belief system everywhere I go. And all these places I've been, even with my substance abuse problems, I keep thinking, if I just move to another town, if I just change locations, I can change everything. But the problem is, wherever you go, you take you with you. Yeah. But I learned about two commodities that aren't traded on the stock exchange. They're traded on the life exchange. Those two commodities are misery and time. Let me tell you, misery is one of those things that you can have an abundant supply of. You can have as much as you want. It's the only thing in life I found that was free, Dr. Flynn. And, and time, though, time was antithetical to that. Time is the most precious resource in the world, and it affects everybody the same way. And, and, and all the money in the world can't buy you one more second of time. So my, uh, my ventures into misery and time, uh, let's start with the first one, misery. So one day I was at work, and, and I'm into doing drugs at this time. I'm doing cocaine. I'm partying all the time. It's 2004. I'm in Dallas. 
because I'm an addict. It doesn't matter which city I move to. I take myself with me, right? I take my habits with me. And the thing that's got to change is me. But I don't have any concept of recovery and all that at this point. And so I'm at work one day and I'm sleeping. And one of the other brokers comes up and he says, hey, man, look, we can't sleep on this job. They'll fire you for that here. He said, come on down to the parking garage. I got something to pick you up. So I hop up. I think we're going down to snort a couple of rails off the CD case in, in this car, you know, a couple of rails of coke. And we get to his car and he hands me this glass pipe with these crystal rocks. In it. And, and I kind of freak out because I've never seen this before. And I asked him, I said, hey, man, what, what the hell is that? And he said, oh, it's, it's he said, you'll love this stuff, man. It's crystal meth. You're going to fall. You're going to love this stuff. And and he was right. I fell in love with that drug, Dr. Flynn. And and I couldn't put that drug down. I smoked that drug. The first time I smoked it, I was up for four days, four days. I just couldn't couldn't put it down. But I felt like I was more focused. I could get more stuff done. And it was instant, instant addiction. And, and that's what no I've heard, time. that it's right away, that it's pretty it's, much it's right, right away. away. Just yeah. like that. <clears throat> and it took no time at all for me to give up everything, freely give up everything. My job, my home, my savings account, my car, my my sanity, my my relationship with my family, my tethering to God, whatever's left of that. And I went from working on Wall Street to living in the streets of Dallas. And um, it was while I was bouncing around from one dope house to the next that I I fell in with the other meth addicts that would become my partners in the uptown burglaries. And, and um, yeah, we, we, we started off with breaking into storage units and cars and, and smaller, smaller thefts, but we eventually escalated to home burglaries, which I mean, is those are a big deal. And that, you know, the state of Texas has, has laws that says that, you know, I can't go out and I can never make apologies to the, to my victims for the things I did, but, it doesn't say that I can't talk about my victims and what I what I stole from these people because I didn't just take these people's property. There was a lot of property taken. Right. But I think from my victims, the thing I took that was most valuable was their sense of security. I took their peace. And when you steal someone's peace, that comes with a big price. And, you know, there's people in Dallas now that probably locked three deadbolts because of me or they go into their home at the end of the day. And they walk in, they think about Damon West in a lot different way than you or your, your viewers, your listeners are going to think about Damon West. You're going to think about Damon West, that, that sorry SOB that came into my home, went places where no one's supposed to go, where my children sleep without my permission. And um, so they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And, and so do I. And as a result of uh, committing my crimes and taking these people's peace, the Dallas Police Department finally caught up with me. It took about three years. But on July 30th, 2008, a SWAT team came into the, the ratty old little apartment where I was living. And they came into the windows, the doors, flashbang grenade went off in my face. And, and I could see and hear again, there was this cop in full SWAT riot gear. And he had his boot on my chest and the barrel of a machine gun is digging in my eye socket. And I can feel the barrel against my eyeball. It's cold. And he's screaming at me, don't move, don't move. And then I hear another cop yell out, you know, we got him. We got the uptown burglar. And they did. They had. And that was the end of the Uptown Burkins on July 30, 2008. They came to an end. So they took me down Dallas County Jail and they processed me, fingerprinted me, mugshot. And, and you know, I spent the first 24 hours when I remember my incarceration. And my thoughts going through my head weren't of my victims. They weren't of my family. My family, who I think now are the biggest victims of the things I've done. But my thoughts were very selfish in the mind of an addict. Just how am I going to get high from here now? Where am I going to get my dope from now? And so wow, I bounced around with that thought in my head, you know, for 10 months while I'm waiting to go to trial. And for 10 months, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, man, if only I can get out of here and get high again. And, and I would pray. Here's my prayer to God. Uh, every night I hit the bunk in, in Dallas County Jail is, God, please get me out of this jam. And if you do, I'll be a normal guy again. And I'm bargaining with God, right? Like God waits for me to get up to run the universe every day, right? So 
God, if you get me out of this jam, if you do, I'll be a normal guy again. I'll get a job and I'll just smoke meth on the weekends. That's it. And that was the best I had. And, and obviously God didn't hear that. Cause when I got to my trial, I, I got to, I got my day in court 10 months later. It was, uh, when I was sentenced, it was May 18th, 2009. And, uh, I got six days in court, actually, Dr. Flynn. And six days is a long criminal trial for something that's not aggravated, where no one was physically hurt, right? This, this which was, which actually played in your favor, at, as it turns out, that nobody was physically hurt with that. Absolutely. That, there's a difference in Texas between aggravated crimes and non-aggravated. An aggravated crime means you have to do half of your sentence before you see parole. But a non-aggravated crime, a, non, a crime where no one was physically hurt, means that you're eligible for good time and work time and, and there's a different path to parole and so when i went to that trial the jury listened to evidence for six days six days and, and over 50 witnesses against me and uh in the end the evidence was so overwhelming that i was guilty that it took a jury 10 minutes to deliberate on my sentence now i don't know how much law and order you watch but oh, 10 yeah. minutes if you're if you're a defendant and the jury's gone 10 minutes they just smoked you yeah and yeah. so when i walked in the courtroom and Judge Snipes gaveled the court back in. He hit the gavel, bam, bam, bam. And he said, Damon Joseph West, you are hereby sentenced to 65 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. It took my breath away, Dr. Flynn. And, my, and oh. the first thing I heard after the judge said my sentence was my mom gasping <gasps> like that on the front row. The sound only a mother can make when she right. hears her son get sentenced to, prison, to life in prison. Right. And um, I remember the feeling that day that that was my rock bottom. That was that was it because I knew then that that the only thing that needed changing wasn't going to be Damon moving somewhere else or, or getting a different job or being around different people. It was Damon. Damon had to change, and and I had no idea how to make that change. And and um, oh, you, you were know, going, was, you were you were making a location change, but not the one that you had um, planned right. on. Right, my, loca my location change was going to be done in handcuffs from a transport bus to another from county jail to a prison. Right. Um. For the rest of my life, it's a life sentence. 65 years is a life sentence. So um, I'm in the pod waiting, waiting for the prison transport to pick me up. And and all the guys in there, I've made a promise to my parents that my mom and dad made me promise that I would not join one of these Aryan Brotherhood type gangs, one of these white hate groups, because I'm scared. And I'm a minority in prison now. They, you know, said so you were raised better than that. My, my parents were involved with civil rights. My dad was the first sports writer to put a black athlete on the front page of a sports page in Port Arthur, Texas in 1971. And, and uh, you know, he's got a box of hate mail at home to prove what that decision was like. So my, and my mother was one of a few white teachers at an all black school in the early seventies and late sixties. So they raised me in, in an environment, Port Arthur, Texas, which was predominantly African-American. They wanted their kids to go to integrated schools. And my mom is reminding me of all this stuff. So I'm running around Dallas County jail for the two months I wait for the prison transport to get me. And I'm asking all these guys that have been to prison, how am I going to survive? And, and every man, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, is telling me the same thing, man. You have got to get to a gang, man. It's the only way you're going to survive at your age, your gang recruiting age, you're 33. They're coming for you, man. And you're, you're going the rest of your life. And there was one guy, though, this old black guy. And uh, it missed, I call him Mr. Jackson. And that's not really his real name. But I let's call him Mr. Jackson for the story. Mr. Jackson was in his 60s. He had been to prison four or five times. And and he knew his way around the system. And so Mr. Jackson would check on me all the time. So one day he comes up and checks on me. And he's like, hey, Wes, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads, these dummies, talking about you need to get to a game. He said, don't listen to them, man. He said, uh, 
you know, he told me that how it was going to work when I got to prison, that race runs everything in prison. He said, it's the most disgusting environment you'll ever see, but don't give into it. And he's telling me, you're going to fight all the white gangs first. And if you survive that, you'll fight all the black gangs. And then if you survive that, you'll earn the right to walk alone. But he gave me this analogy. And this analogy I've used everywhere I go and, and college football programs and, and corporations pick up on this analogy. They run with it. It's the coffee bean. He said, Wes, imagine prison is like a pot of warm water. He said, anything we put in that pot of warm water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I want to put three things in that pot of warm water and watch them change. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. He said, first things first, Wes. He said, if I put a carrot in that pot of warm water we call prison, he said, what happens when you boil a carrot? I said, what turns soft? He said, that's right, man. The prison, the carrot goes into prison hard, man. But prison, that pot of boiling water, prison changes that carrot, man. Turns him soft. He said, the carrot got beat. He got robbed. He got raped. He may have gotten killed. He said, you don't want to be the carrot. He said, if I put an egg in that pot of boiling water, we call prison. He said, what happens when you boil an egg? I said, it's easy, Mr. Jackson. The egg turns hard. He said, that's right. He said, the egg goes into prison with that hard outer shell and that soft liquid inside. But prison changed that egg too, man. That, that water changed that egg turned him hard on the inside like he is on the outside. He said the egg is incapable of giving and receiving love because his heart's too hard. He said, if you become that egg, you've become institutionalized. He said, you might as well stay in prison the rest of your life because you'll keep going back. That's what the eggs do. He said, but Wes, if I put a coffee bean, the smallest of these three things, if I put a coffee bean in that pot of warm water, we call prison. What happens when you boil a coffee bean? I didn't know, Dr. Flynn. So he says, you know, and he says, Wes, for a college boy, you're not too smart. He said, Wes, he said, if you put a coffee bean in a pot of warm water, you got to change the name of the water to coffee. You just made coffee, man. He said, the coffee bean, the smallest of these three things, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot. He said, if you were going to survive prison and come back as the man you, your parents recognize, you got to be like that coffee bean. He said, you got to change the entire atmosphere around you. And he explained that the laws of attraction. He said, everybody in life puts out energy, negative or positive. He said, whatever kind of energy you put out, you get back. He said, if you walk around with a frown on your face and a scowl, he said, you'll attract that same kind of person and you'll get into a lot of fights. He said, but if you walk around with a smile on your face, you let those dudes know they're not getting to you no matter what they come with. He said, you will change that prison from the inside out. And the best part about it is the other coffee beans in prison, they will find you because of your energy. And then he got up and left. He kind of gave me this, this kind of look and he got up and left. And, and I looked around that pod and kind of jail through Tobograd. I thought to myself, damn, if I were to look around this pod, who I would be coffee beans. And I could count myself. I could count Mr. Jackson and two other guys in that pod that I thought were coffee beans. They were positive all the time. And then I thought, well, we all four hang out with each other. And then I realized that I didn't find these guys. They found me that right. they fed off me because of my energy too. And so right. when I looked around and I realized that it kind of made me smile, Dr. Flynn, because I thought, you know what? Everything's going to be okay. I've got this secret. I can take this with me. And it will be fine as long as I apply these principles of this coffee bean. And it worked. That's actually, you know, we have you talking about stage six with MetaHab. And that is really moving things forward and bringing that attraction and moving things forward in life where you've embraced your past, recognized what it takes to grow and move forward. And that gentleman that you spoke about with the coffee bean that's the best metaphor for stage six I can almost think of that is just a perfect way to do it and also the notion of surrounding yourself we do this I talk about this all the time with people who are positive and wanting to move forward 
you you Absolutely. must surround yourself with that type of energy and the people like that. So Absolutely. yeah. And then well, do, go ahead. No, I was going to say, do me a favor then and take that analogy, apply it to stage six and spread it as far as you can. I oh. tell people all the time, <laughs> my call to action, every time I go somewhere and speak, my call to action at the end is to take that coffee bean analogy and share it with the world. You oh. know, go out and change the world one person at a time. Yeah, this is going to be, but I will tell you really off, uh, off to the side, uh, I've already talked to my, I give my students at the end of each semester the 10 things Dr. Michael Flynn wants you to know before you leave here. And I incorporated the coffee bean story into that this last time. I yeah, I did. I and I it. used your name. So you, I know that you, uh, once you did get to prison, you successfully walked that very thin line and uh, were successful in that. And you found a law library. And can you speak a little bit about that now? Yeah. So in prison, they have these guys, they call them jailhouse lawyers. They call them writ writers. They call them prison attorneys. But what they are is other inmates that hang around the law library. And when they, you know, when you've got the kind of time I've got, you know, the law library is your only hope because, you know, the only two ways out of prison are uh, through parole and through the courts. So parole doesn't seem like an option when you get a life sentence. So the courts are the only thing, you know, so it's time to write my appeal, my writ of habeas corpus. And so all these jailhouse attorneys are, are hitting me up. I mean, it is like feeding frenzy and they're, they're making me these offers, you know, you know, Wes, for a hundred dollars in soups and, com and cookies and coffee and stamps, I'll get you out of prison. And I would tell these guys the same thing. It costs more than a hundred dollars in any form of currency to get me into this jam. It's going to cost more than a hundred to get me out. So, with no money to my name, I went down to the law library. I paid a guy $5, two bags of coffee, to show me how to use the law library. Show me what the books mean. I've never been in a law library before in my life. So I got a one-day tutorial for 5 bucks, And um, at the end of that, I was on my own to write my writ, to write my appeal. And, and it took two months. It was the hardest thing intellectually I've had to do to this day. Even even the stats class that I just took and actually made an A <laughs> on. That was hard uh -huh. intellectually. But writing my writ from never having experience of doing it was the most challenging thing I've ever done. And when it was all done, I sent a copy of it to this man named Walter Humphrey. And Mr. Walter Humphrey is the uh, partner in the firm Provost Humphrey Law Firm, which is a huge civil litigation firm in Beaumont, Texas, right where I'm doing my time, right where I grew up. Port Arthur's right next to Beaumont. The prison I'm in is in Beaumont, right, right down the road. And he's an old family friend. He's a philanthropist, too. So. I sent him a letter with my writ and asked him, I said, hey, Mr. Humphrey, can you please have one of your lawyers look at my writ and tell me how bad I'm going to get beat? Well, he got back in touch with me. And he said, you know, Damon, you put together one hell of a writ for a guy that's never been to law school. He said, when you get out of prison one day, come see me. I may have a job for you. And so I've got a lot of trepidation trepidation building up about what life would be like on the outside. But, but uh, more than anything, I just want to be useful again. I want to be a part of society. I want to be like that coffee bean. I want to go in there and change right, the atmosphere right. and, and be the change that I want to see in life. Like the old Gandhi quote, be the change that you want to see. And, and so she said, I like that. And, um, she said, you really want that parole option? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, I really do. She said, it's one of our hardest ones and people that fail it end up going back to prison. I said, well, I mean, when you're ready, give me a shot. And they gave it to me, they gave wow. it to me. And so and they, they sent me the last six months of prison. They sent me to what's called an IPTC, an in-prison therapeutic community. One of the coolest prison experiments I've ever seen in my life. They take all these guys out of prison and they put you in this program. And the first thing they do when you get into the IPTC is they show you around. 
the fences are about six foot high. You can jump the fence if you want to. But why would you do that? Because the next thing they give you is a piece of paper that tells you your release date. Six months from the day that you're there. My release date said November 16th, 2015. And man, when you've been in prison like that and you see a piece of paper that says what day you're going home and it's soon, I mean, something breaks. I mean, it breaks inside you. You're like, yeah. wow, you know, it's, it's right. real. It becomes, it becomes real. And so I made the most of the last six months. I went into that program and I took it took everything out of it that it offered. You know, it was a behavior modification program. But one of the things I did while I was there is I went around asking all the guys that had been to prison four or five or six times. I asked those guys, hey, what are you going to do when you get out of prison this time? It's always this time. I've been there so many times. Right. And they would start telling me all the things you're going to do. I'm going to find my homeboys. I'm going to get high. I'm going to find a woman. I'm going to do this. So, Dr. Flynn, what I started doing is making a list of things I'm not going to do when I get out of prison right, because right. obviously this isn't working for these guys. And that's one of the things in life you have to find. Everybody's got something to teach you. And it's maybe it's not something good. Maybe it's something bad. Maybe somebody's going to teach you of what not to do. And sometimes exactly. our purpose in life is to be an example of what not to do. And that's where I found in prison with my plan of action. I told parole, let me go out and be an example of what not to do to kids, man. Let me go around, turn me loose. Let me go to kids and talk all over the country and right. share my story to be an example of what not to do. And, and so I was working on that in prison therapeutic community. And, um, and then, so how, how many years did you actually spend? Seven years, three months, 18 days. Wow. So day. you just, and when she walked out, what was that? Was, what was that? Your, it's something that your mind does. It plays, it, it's, it's a trick of the mind. Because when I walked on the other side of that gate, the ground felt different beneath my feet. The air was lighter. The sky was bluer. The grass was greener. And I can't. I can't even explain to you how that happens, uh, Dr. And it's almost emotional even talking about it. But something happens in your mind and it changes. Like I said, the sky is blue. The grass is greener. And you're seeing these things happening. How can it happen? You know, I went to Whataburger. That was the first thing I ate when I got out. So went to Whataburger. And when you walk inside, they've got this bright orange sign and it's flashing and people are wearing different colored clothes. You know, it's the real world. You're not in this sterile institutional environment where everybody's wearing the same color and steel and concrete. And I stopped in my tracks and my dad's walking with me. He's like, hey, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, let me just absorb all this. But it was sensory overload. Mm -hmm. I ran into sensory overload inside of Whataburger because there's flashing lights or sounds I haven't heard. There's people moving around. Right. It was too much. It was too much right right at first. And I had only been locked up for seven years, three months, 18 days. I was in with people that were getting out the middle lecture for 30 years. What did they how think? Did they do? Yeah. How did they pull how did that they off? Do? Yeah. But, yeah. But so I got out of prison and I had so much help, Dr. Flynn. I mean, I got out of prison. My parents let me live with them for the first couple of years I was out. Um, when I walked into their home, I had home I had never been to before. Uh, there were clothes everywhere. Uh, people from church, fraternity brothers from college got together and donated clothes That's to me. There was, there was food everywhere. People baked cakes and all kinds of stuff. It was, and they, they were so happy to have me home. And all this trepidation I had about what it was going to be like, none of it came to fruition. And part of that is because that guy, Mr. Humphrey, um, Mr. Humphrey from that law firm, Provost Humphrey Law Firm, I got out November 16, 2015, about three years to the day, almost from what we're talking right now. And on November 17th, the next morning, I came here to this firm where I'm talking to you right yeah. now and met with Mr. Humphrey. And, uh, and he gave me a job. He gave me a job. Wow. I worked 
yeah, I mean, right out of prison, I walk into one of the most prestigious law firms in the state of Texas, and he gives me a job. He gives me, I work, oddly enough, I work in the pharmaceutical division. Oh. And um, yeah. <laughs> Talk about, oh my gosh. So, that uh, is that's, great. In fact, that's your shirt, the Provost of the Law Firm. So, <laughs> so since the first day out of prison, I worked at this law firm, and uh, it gave me instant, instant validity, you know, yes. it gives instant validity to a guy that needs a little help with validity and credibility. Right. And, right. and part of the, the other thing about it is too, is, is I didn't hang my head down in shame when I got out of prison, Dr. Flynn, I went out of prison with a purpose because I, you know, I, I, you know, I told anybody that would listen to me, give me a chance to talk to kids, give me a chance to tell my story. Cause if I can help one kid, one family, one victim that doesn't have to go through what I went through, what I put other people through, Right. then it's worth it. You know, let me make, let me make purpose of my life. Let me be useful. It comes back to hope, Dr. Flynn, mm-hmm. that the four letter word hope, because here's the deal. If you have no hope, then you're like that thirsty man in the desert and you may drink the sand. And, mm-hmm. and, um, God, if I can, if I can help give anybody hope. And, and I think I have, I think I've got to that point because there was a judge, a judge and a guy from the DA's office, the judge's name, judge Brad Burnett. And the, the, the guy at the DA's office was Marcelo Malfino. And these two men both started bringing me into schools in this, in this area where I live in Southeast Texas. And um, eventually I started telling my story and it started and other educators started calling and said, we want Damon to come to our school. And before long college football program started calling because I played college oh, football. Right. And, and then I'm going from, you know, schools in this area, talking to schools all over the country. And then I'm walking into Clemson and Alabama and Texas A&M and Georgia, Michigan state talking to their football teams and sharing my story. And, but all along the way, you know, you get feedback sometimes from, from parents, the best, best things I get on social media are from a parent that'll look me up and say, Hey, Damon, you got a conversation started in our home that we didn't even know we needed to have. And we really thank you for that. One of the things that I'm hearing from you and I hear, and this is the message that I want to make, you're very motivational. Your story is very compelling and it's very motivational and that's great. But unfortunately, that motivation and that compelling just doesn't last as long as the message you give. And that message is how do you move from the depths of despair over time into um, this triumphing over that and what does that look like? So maybe you could take the next few minutes and really just... Sure. Focus on that part. One of it is this. Three favorite words of mine put together are position determines perspective. So we all have perspectives in life from the different places we've been, the different positions we've been in. And if I want to make the most out of my life today, no matter what life throws at me, I have to remind myself the perspective of how bad things have been before and how much I've overcome to get where I am right now. You know, um, Anytime I have something that happens, like I'm in graduate school right now, I'm getting a master's degree and, you know, I get stressed out studying for a test, but I got to remind myself, Damon, even if you fail this test, are you going back to prison? No, everything's right. going to be okay. Keeping things in perspective, Dr. Flynn, right. is so important. But one of the most important things to keep in perspective is my role in this world. Humility is almost like being right-sized, you know, what is my role in this life? What can I affect? What can I do? And, you know, Dr. Flynn, one of the things I go, and I keep going back to this service work, if I'm having a tough time, my sponsor told me, whenever I got out of prison, my sponsor told me, because I was looking for stuff to do. And he said, you want to find something to do? 
he said, go to a, a retirement home, you know, go in there and ask them at the front desk for a list of people that never get visits. And they'll give it to you. They don't care if you're next calling. They'll give it to you. He said, go spend time with people that hadn't had a visit in 10 years that are 90 years old, you know, and it'll give you for some perspective in life, you know, it'll let you get out of yourself. The point is getting outside of self. Right. When I keep coming back to right. this, but we have to get outside of ourselves because it's never as bad as we think it is. But when we cave into that, when we give into the pressure of, oh my God, this is so severe, this is so bad, we have to be able to step back and, and be objective about things. And, and all my life, I've been subjective. It's always about Damon. But, you know, I, I play such a small role, but I want to play my small role very well. I want to go out there and be that coffee bean and be right. that positive force of change. I love that. And I think, you know, I love things in threes. I don't know, but, you know, and I, you know, I'm Catholic too. So, you know, I love the father, son, the yeah. Holy Ghost. I love things. I had three kids. I have, you know, whatever. Uh, but I kind of, when I listen to you, I think I can kind of sum it up in um, almost like three words that you do that it's service, gratitude, and hope. I yeah, keep hearing absolutely. that through you. Service, gratitude and hope so maybe we'll finish it up with that so if that's there any last words that you you got i gotta say this what do you have on the horizon here and here's the deal i wrote a book it's called the change agent and the change agent is someone that changes their environment around them. they're a change agent so the coffee bean is what the book is all about it talks about everything it's my whole life it's my memoir i've got speaking engagements coming up if anybody's ever interested in having me come speak you can reach me through my website at www.damonwest.com D-A-M-O-N-W-E-S-T dot O-R-G. Thank you okay. so much. God bless you. Thank you. And God bless Thank your you so mom. Much, you you got a shout out for oh, the she's moms wonderful. there. She's, <laughs> she's, she's wonderful. She's, she, if without her, I wouldn't be here today, without a doubt. But Thank you for giving me a chance to be useful okay. today. You gave my oh, life yeah. work. Oh, yes. Learn more about post-traumatic growth through metahabilitation and about Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn by visiting metahab.com. You'll also be able to order Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn's book, Turning Tragedy into Triumph. Sliver of Hope, the podcast series on post-traumatic growth, is presented by Metahab and a production of Multipoint Content Strategies. If you'd like to contribute either your personal story or the story of someone you know, please email a brief description of your story to mystory at metahab.com. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a general discussion of the topic presented, which may or may not apply to the individual listener. It is not intended to provide and is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor, therapist, mental health professional, or other qualified medical professional. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the interviewer or guest.